Hello and welcome to the last ever episode of the Modernist Podcast. This has been a long time in the making, so thank you for waiting. My name is Sean Richardson and for the last time I'll be your host. What a journey it's been. I began the Modernist Podcast over three years ago to help support PhDs and ECRs disseminate their work to a wider audience. Since our inception, the podcast has racked up over 20,000 listeners, been the feature of articles published in journals, been used as teaching material in classrooms, and, best of all, platformed the voices of over 50 researchers across 18 episodes and 7 minisodes. I'm really proud of our output and grateful to everyone who's participated and listened, so a huge thank you. The theme of our last episode is really exciting. Jean Reese, And, as we finish, this is our own voyage in the dark. To help us light the way, we have two researchers, Lisa Fekler-Stover from the University of Cambridge and Eleanor Rowe from Brown. So without further ado, let's introduce them. Lisa, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello everybody. My name is Lisa Fekler-Stover and I am currently a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge. My supervisor is Dr. Rod Mingham, and my work focuses on portrayals of movement and paralysis in short stories written between the 1890s and the 1930s. I am examining the work of several short story authors writing during this period, and Jean Rees is one of the authors that I am looking at. I am also currently one of the conveners of the 20th Century and Contemporary Graduate Research Seminar at Cambridge University. That's great. Can you tell us about the project and what inspired it? So, when I was an undergraduate student at Glasgow University in Scotland, I was sitting in a bookshop one stormy afternoon, as you do, and uh, I was reading James Joyce's short story collection, Dubliners. Now, Dubliners opens with a short story called The Sisters, and The Sisters is about a little boy who is coming to terms with the fact that an acquaintance of his, an aging priest, is dying. The priest has been left paralyzed by a stroke. Let me read you a few lines from Joyce's The Sisters. Every night, as I gazed up at the window, I said softly to myself the word paralysis. It had always sounded strangely in my ears. But now it sounded to me like the name of some maleficent and sinful being. It filled me with fear, and yet I longed to be nearer to it and to look upon its deadly work. Now, this emphasis on physical and mental paralysis recurs throughout Dubliners, and I noticed that this was part of a wider trend. Roughly at the same time as James Joyce was writing short stories about paralysis and stagnation, Franz Kafka was writing short stories about characters climbing endless staircases which lead nowhere, and D.H. Lawrence was writing about rocking horses. Thomas Hardy and Aldous Huxley were writing about roundabouts and carousels. Jean Rhys writes about wandering about aimlessly through cities. So there are all of these images of characters who move, but who move like hamsters running in a wheel. Their progress is an illusion. They do not actually move forward. And it struck me as strange that so many short stories written during this period are about how difficult it is for individuals to move, because individual mobility was absolutely revolutionized between the 1890s and the 1930s. Cars, buses, bicycles, trams all became accessible, railway networks expanded massively, travel just became easier, cruises on ocean liners became safer and more affordable. 
So my doctoral project examines why a thematic focus on paralysis keeps cropping up again and again in short stories written at a time when speed and efficient motion were easier than ever before in human history. In particular, I'm considering what the short story can convey through metaphors of movement that the novel cannot. So how does Jean Rhys fit in with this larger project? So Jean Rhys lived a life and wrote about a life experience which only became possible because methods of transportation were revolutionized around the turn of the 20th century. Jean Rhys was born in 1890 in the British West Indies. When she was 16, she was sent away from her parents to be educated in England. Now, a young girl being sent halfway across the world just to get an education, this would have been an outlandish idea were it not for the existence of the steamship, which made ocean crossing safer and easier than ever before. And then you have to consider the type of life which Jean Rhys led after she arrived in Europe. During her teens and early twenties, Jean Rhys toured England as a chorus girl, constantly moving from one town to another. Eventually, she met her first husband, Jean Lenglet, who was Dutch and who kept moving from country to country looking for work. Jean Rees's husband was involved in petty crime and sometimes he was on the run from the police. So Jean Rees followed her husband from one European city to another. The couple stayed in London, in Paris, in Brussels, in Vienna. They never really settled down anywhere and Jean Rees was a foreigner everywhere she went. And this unstable, migratory way of life was quintessentially modern. It would simply not have been possible in a previous century because the infrastructure which enabled such relentless travel had only recently been put into place. So Jean Rees's work and her perspective is extremely relevant when it comes to considering the relationship between movement, migration and the modern short story. Ah, fascinating. And regarding mobility, how does Jean Rees present women interacting with space? When I first began studying Jean Rees, I read her novels before I read her short stories. And the interesting thing about Jean Rees's novels, such as Quartet and Voyage in the Dark, is that these novels expose and condemn financial inequality between men and women, and yet they resist straightforward feminist interpretations. In her novels, Jean Rees writes about precariously employed women, essentially having to prostitute themselves to older men in order to survive. But Jean Rees subverts the gender dynamic, which one would expect, because in both Quartet and in Voyage in the Dark, the rich men end up abandoning the vulnerable young women, but they remain happy to keep giving their former mistresses money. The young women, meanwhile, they don't want to accept any more money because they have fallen in love. And the great question is why? Why are Jean Rhys's female protagonists so often attracted to selfish, insensitive, inept, and frankly rather dull men? And I think the answer can be found in Jean Rhys's short stories. Consider, for instance, the opening lines of Jean Rhys's short story, Vienne. Funny how it slipped away, Vienna. Nothing left but a few snapshots. Not a friend, not a pretty frock, nothing left of Vienna. Hot sun, my black frock, a hat with roses, music, lots of music. 
So the way in which Jean Rhys presents space across her body of work um, is encapsulated within the few lines which I've just read. Nothing remains of the city Vienna, except for a few vivid, fragmentary impressions. Because they constantly move from place to place, Jean Rhys's protagonists don't have friends. Instead, they have fleeting acquaintances. They don't have stable homes. Instead, they have temporary stays in hotel rooms. And this is where paralysis comes in again. So often, characters in Jean Rhys's short stories spend hours in bed doing nothing because they are so adrift, they have no plan, they have nowhere to go. For instance, Jean Rhys has a harrowing short story called A Night about a woman lying in bed, staring at the ceiling and only thinking, if I had something to hold on to, or somebody, one friend, one, you know I can't be alone, I can't, God send me a friend. How ridiculous I am, how primitive, sneering at myself, I start on childishnesses, I imagine the man I could love, his hands, eyes and voice, hello, he'll say, what's all this fuss about? He will buy me roses and carnations and chocolates and a pair of pink silk pajamas and heaps of books. So, in her novels, Jean Rhys is not saying that young women simply find sturdy older men with wooden face expressions attractive. Instead, Jean Rhys is suggesting that people, female or male, who are homeless, such people will gravitate towards stability. But of course, stability and confinement are oppressive to people used to being free as birds. And this is where the tension in almost all of Jean Rhys's work lies. Amazing. And finally then, is there something in particular about the short story form that you're interested in regarding Rhys? How does one write about doing nothing with one's day because one has no stability and, crucially, also no community? How does one write about places of which nothing remains except superficial impressions, because one didn't live there long enough to become truly familiar with the culture? How does one write about the experience of briefly meeting people who one will never see again? One writes brief narratives, of course. Brevity lends itself to portrayals of inaction and superficiality, more so than length. In my dissertation as a whole, I am making the argument that as transportation networks expanded at the turn of the 20th century, people traveled and migrated more, and so communities increasingly fragmented and superficial knowledge of people and places became more commonplace. Paradoxically, the more connected the world became, the more potential there was for the individual to become isolated and rootless. And this is one of the reasons for why the short story thrived at the time. I think that this also explains why Jean Rhys's novels are all very short. They are all under 150 pages. Brevity lends itself particularly well to writing about a life experience that is dominated by constant migration. Thanks so much, Lisa. It's truly interesting to hear about Rhys through the lens of your project. Next up, we have Eleanor Rowe from Brown. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Eleanor Rowe. I'm a fifth year PhD student at Brown University. Uh, my supervisor is Tamar Katz and my committee, aside from her, is made up of Amanda Anderson and Leela Gandhi at Brown and then Elaine Scarry, uh, who's my fourth reader over at Harvard. Um, so my work, uh, my work's based at the turn of the century. Um, 
I'm interested particularly in the relationship between form, nationalism and empire. Uh, this means, of course, that I'm thinking a lot always too about gender, colonialism, aesthetics and war. Um, for my dissertation, um, I'm thinking principally about novels which take on very structured and severe forms. They're often late novels uh, by, by authors. Um, and of note here in the project is uh, The Buildings Roman, particularly. Um, my first chapter was on the aesthetics of the ordinary and their relationship with British and Third Reich nationalism in Christopher Isherwood's Berlin novels and his later autobiography, Christopher and His Kind. Um, and I just finished a chapter on Thomas Hardy's novels of development, which discusses uh, his creation of Wessex as a sort of super space for narratives of development along strictly English lines. Um, Hardy and Isherwood, um, I'm finding more and more as I'm writing, but you know, I started out writing about this too, um, both use the form of the novel of development against itself um, in my reading. Um, uh, it shows in their work the limits of both uh, the contemporary politics of authors who use that form and of the readerly expectation um, that, that comes with their work. So as our final researcher ever, can you tell us about your project and what inspired it? So, um, I, yeah, I've been talking uh, a bit about my project before, but um, basically, um, I've sort of always been interested in, uh, in the idea of, of what nationalism is and, and what its limits are. I mean, I think especially with the current horrifying political situation in Britain, this has been on my mind, but um, even as an, an undergrad, uh, my undergraduate dissertation um, was about the limits of Englishness in Ford Maddox Ford's early novels. I mean, the idea of nationality as being a kind of thing you have to carry around is this juggernaut that goes all the way through Ford's work. Um, and I was also uh, reading and thinking a lot about Reese at that time, um, not just because Reese and Ford were in a very long-standing relationship, um, but also because a lot of my undergraduate work and a lot of now my graduate work um, was very concerned with post-colonial studies. So, yeah, my, my project in general, um, what, I'm, what I'm trying to think about is whether or not the Buildings Roman form is always already ideological and what that might mean if it is, and also whether or not it's possible for characters within novels of development to sort of live badly within those forms, to show the limits of the form through the way the author presents them as being sort of in opposition to it. I think this is very clear in Hardy, um, but I also think that this is uh, something that comes up a great deal in Reese novels. Um, Jean Reese's characters are often placed in situations which they're almost allergic to. You know, she, she places women who have no telos or trajectory of development in novels of development. Great, and uh, how does Jean Reese gel with this wider project? I think in a very real sense, Reese is in this project. I mean, I talk about her, or I will talk about her a bit in my in my Bowen chapter, but so much of my um, my research has been so influenced by my reading and thinking about Reese and, and Ford in their circle. Um, Reese's novels, so many of them, you know, as, as many wonderful scholars uh, have said, uh, probably most notably Jed Esty, um, are obsessed with development um, and have the idea of change and growth as being not sort of necessary or even guaranteed but like really dictated by the the vicissitudes of your environment um so 
uh, Reese's, Reese's most famous novel of Wide Sargasso Sea is essentially a building's romance in which the building's hell doesn't get to develop because of the way that her society constrains her and because of the, the way that English culture responds to uh, that which is, which is not its own. It's all about the sort of failure of imagined communities to be, to be welcoming. Um, but you know Reese's Reese's other novels too, her Paris novels uh, are are all about the the sort of requirement and desire to adhere to modes of ordinariness and modes of nationalized legibility that that have these terrible sort of life sentences if if one can't do it. Can you talk to us more about your work on recent otherness? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm certainly not the only person who has observed that there are certain kinds of bodies that are welcome in Reese and certain kinds that aren't. Um, there have been a lot of wonderful things written about uh, about Reese's novels which are set um, in proximity to or in the Caribbean. Um, I've been thinking in my work, uh, just because these novels tend to take up Englishness as a problematic for the character and not sort of one that, that surrounds the character, um, about her, her later novels, her, her Paris novels. Um, so yeah, this idea, this idea of otherness is really important in Rees because so many of her protagonists are presented as being in opposition to their environments. They're not allowed to be there. They have to live in hotels, which are always transitory spaces. They're always trying to dress themselves and make themselves up and dye their hair in order to look and feel as if they're members of an environment which is fundamentally not not one that they're welcome in um i think reese does this really interesting uh thoughtful work on the idea that once women reach a certain age and she never tells us what the age is in her novels they've just past some sort of imaginary tipping point, um, they have to work unbelievably hard in order to not even be accepted, but to be allowed to live in the way that they're used to, to living. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of um, otherness in Reese is presented not as being a problematic of her protagonists being odd or being difficult or being undesirable. It's that they've simply moved through the time in their lives when they're allowed to be where they want to. Ah, fascinating. And finally, Reese is often discussed in terms of space, but you call attention to the temporal contours of her work. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, so I think Reese's novels are obsessed with time. Um, especially her novels about older women are obsessed with the idea of, of time passing and with the sort of the covalent idea that the possibility for conducting like good labor or good reproductive labor or finding love is somehow predicated on them them beating time or being able to conceal the the fact that time has passed um i think that time and space are fundamentally interrelated in reese's work too because uh for her female characters and i think for many female characters um, the the way that one is allowed to be in space and the way that one can feel welcome in space is either with the currency of youth or with the currency of having completed all of one's societally dictated rites of passage. So there's a there's a moment at the end of after leaving Mr. Mackenzie, um, where uh Mr. Mackenzie having met Julia and and um thinking that she you know she looks dreadful she looks tired, um says to himself uh that she's she's gone fat. 
P-H-U-T. He says there are black specks in the corners of her eyes and that women women go fut quite suddenly, he supposed. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that time and space in, in, in Reese's late novels are are very interrelated, mostly just because of this this fear of, of, of going fat, this fear of becoming sort of relegated to the garbage heap of, of one's chronology. You know, um, it's they're these beautiful, sort of very darkly funny novels about the way that space stops being accessible to people if they aren't living in a way that their contemporaneous society says is like good and effective. Thanks, Elena. And so finally, we come to the discussion portion of the podcast, where our contributors get to discuss their corner of modernism, what they're excited about and what they want to see more of. So what are you excited about in the field as it continues to grow? Elena, do you want to start? Oh, uh, the field at the moment. Uh, okay, uh, I was just looking at Arti Verde's really amazing book, Chimeras of Form, a little while ago. Um, and I have just seen that she is uh, working on a second book at the moment, which is called We the Platform, Contemporary Literature in the Sharing Economy. So I'm very excited about that because uh, I think she's amazing. Um, I think the next MSA is going to be really wonderful. Um that is going to be MSA 2020. Uh, the theme is streets. Uh, that's always such an exciting conference. I think that's going to be really cool. Um, yeah, and I just in general, I think so So many of my friends and colleagues in the field have been coming out with such exciting stuff. I'm really excited about um, all of the, the modernist study stuff that's been um, coming out in response to new materialisms and also um, like all of the, the new studies stuff on modernism and empire has been really, really cool. The European Network for Short Fiction Research puts on absolutely wonderful conferences about the short story every year. In October 2019, we had a conference in France, in Montpellier, on the topic of short fiction as humble fiction. And the conference highlighted the unique ability of the short story form to center marginalized voices. And I thought that this was a very important and exciting topic. And I'm looking forward to finding out what the theme will be for the annual conference in 2020. That's great. And what would you like to see more of? I would like to see more focus on the short story in modernist studies. I feel as though short stories are sometimes sidelined in favor of novels and poetry. And I think that that's a shame. Um, I will try and keep this short. I think that modernist studies, although it's made very good steps, uh, could still be much more intersectional. Uh, I also think that we could be more interdisciplinary uh, in the way that many other fields uh, have become in the last few years. Uh, I also think that it would be good just for our health um, if we spent less time talking about strict periodization. Um, the amount of arguments that I've had about whether or not Thomas Hardy is a modernist, aside from in his poetry, are innumerable. Thanks, guys, and thanks to all our listeners. Again, I'm very grateful to everyone who's tuned in over the last three years. I'm leaving academia now for the time being, but producing the podcast has been one of the highlights of my time during my PhD. Thank you all very much, and you can always contact us and find all our details at www.modernistpodcast.org or look online on SoundCloud to listen to all these episodes. Cheers very much. Bye for now.